Hello there and welcome to another episode of Podcast 1201. I am Callum Roper and today I am joined by Mr. Callum Watt. Good afternoon. And Ollie Baldwin. Hello everyone, hope you're safe and well. Indeed. And so we have three interesting stories for you this week. It's quite a variety. We're going to kick off with talking about Keir Starmer's big policy announcement in the week. Uh, he's talking about the Brexit, Brexit, no, the COVID recovery plan. Um, arguably, it will also include the Brexit recovery plan, but we'll get into that in a bit. We're also going to be talking about a landmark judgment from the High Court, which saw Uber drivers declared as employees of Uber, which is obviously going to have big ramifications for the gig economy. And then we'll get into social media, talking about the issues around racism and perhaps social media's companies' failure to deal with that racism adequately enough. But we'll return to the first story. We'll return to Keir Starmer's announcement, his big speech in the week. He made a number of announcements the first of which was a British recovery bond, which is an official saving scheme. And it's basically going to try and encourage people to invest their savings that they made during the lockdowns. So it can be used for post-COVID spending on infrastructure and jobs. But there's also going to be startup loans for businesses. Um, this will be a government scheme again that provides investment in new businesses. I think we know that the high street has taken a real battering throughout the COVID period and a lot of aspirational businesses will be struggling. There's also partnership with businesses. This is something that Keir Stum is very keen to express that Labour wants to be um, a, a, a partner to business. Uh, and, and he says, quote, Labour needs to be something, uh, Labour needs to act towards businesses as something just to be, not just to be tolerated or taxed, but something to work in partnership. Uh, and he also speaks about tackling deep-rooted inequalities. Uh, he, he, quite, he quoted Harold Wilson talking about a moral crusade, and he wanted to speak about how um, life expectancy had stalled for so many people. The pandemic shows how broken society is, how many inequalities they are, and he wants to really um, to, to, to use that term, level up the country. And finally, he also spoke about public services and that there really need to be a big investment in public services. And I think we'll get into that as well here. And he included talking about the £20 a week uplift in universal credit that Labour supported. So I'll go to Wally first. What is your reaction to Keir Starmer's speech? Was you enthused by it? Was you sort of shrugging your shoulders at it? Or was the content nowhere near enough what we need? for a post-COVID recovery? I would say it's a, a mix of those emotions. Um, I was, I, I went away feeling quite, I wouldn't say inspired, but um, I think some of the things in there were actually quite interesting ideas. Um, whether they are his, his own ideas, that's um, potentially debatable. But I, I think, you know, the idea of a, a British recovery bond, it kind of recognises that um, we've got a... Um, invest our way out of this kind of crisis, this economic crisis we find ourselves in. Um, but but it, it kind of recognises that it's um, it's going to be a collective goal as well, which I quite like. Um, you know, the, the feeling that we're all in this together, which is which is something the government has tried to 
to pedal um, all, all along. But um, I think that could be a potential, um, a potentially good idea to to wield. Mm. I think that that that's a very interesting point. Um, the the government do like to talk about us being all in this together, and it seems to me that the Labour Party is now trying to do this with policy. Um, and I think that that's, that's absolutely right. But as to whether this is the right approach for we're all in this together to ask for money for bonds. Um, Callum, before we went and recorded the podcast, you were speaking about how this is very much a showpiece with the with the bonds as a central piece of this announcement from Keir Starmer. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'll say straight away, it's not a bad policy in and of itself. There are a lot of people um, who have actually financially done quite well i'm sure um most people would still rather have you know spent the money on seeing their friends and family and going on holiday or whatever um but financially they've got a lot of savings so they're doing quite well um and the idea behind these bonds is that you can take that money and invest it in this recovery fund which will then be used to build infrastructure and hopefully houses and that sort of thing um, it's not too specific about what it will be spent on, but that's 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 a good thing in principle. The thing is that the government obviously doesn't, whoever's in charge, the government wouldn't need to do that to raise money. It doesn't need middle class householders who've saved £120 million over the last year. Um, it's a huge amount of money, especially on a sort of an individual scale, but it's not much for a government. Government doesn't need to do it. So... But that doesn't make it necessarily a bad policy. To my mind, it's a, a cheap way, basically, of winning over the, that section of the electorate. You know, people can feel like they've contributed. Um, and at the same time, they get some sort of financial benefit. There's no real downside to, to including that in your, in your policy announcement. And generally speaking, that sort of uh, seems to have summed up the speech because there's nothing particularly objectionable about it. There's a lot of good policies in there. Uh, there's just nothing particularly exciting. I don't quite understand why uh, you would make bonds the the exciting centerpiece of your first uh, of your sort of post COVID speech where you're setting out your vision for the next ten years. You know, if it's a vi- if it's a vision, you know, it's an extremely moderate one um, and not particularly exciting. If you think back, and I think I spoke on the last podcast as well, you know, about comparisons to people like Attlee, for instance, you know, Attlee, uh, which, which is Attlee's extremely, uh, you know, extremely popular in, in sort of labor movement law, you know, cause he's the, he's the prime minister who transformed the country. Um, but, you know, he was, he was, and I feel like Keir Starmer over the last few months has been trying to kind of capture that uh, ethos by, you know, supporting the government through a national crisis, and then afterwards saying, "Okay, well, we're going to win the peace." So that the slogan after the Second World War was, "You won the war, now you win the peace." But you know, we haven't won the war. COVID's not gone. Um, and it never will do. It's just going to be something that we have to live with, um, much like we do with uh, seasonal flu, or I think actually measles was a more um, considered a more uh, uh, apt analogy. 
um, but without getting too much into that. Um, so we haven't succeeded in defeating the virus. And at the same time, whereas the post-war Labour government was articulating an entire transformation of the way society runs, uh, you know, active planning to make sure that you, uh, everyone has a decent home, that there are, you know, that there are adequate schools for people to go to, that you're maintaining full employment. Compared to that, saying that you're going to have a, a recovery bond to spend on a few things that might improve things a little bit pales really in comparison. So, I mean, I, I have to, you know, we have to remember, I mean, you know, as I say, as I've said many times, I was active in the party, in the Labour Party between 2010 and 2015. And this is still much, much better than that. Because in those days, uh, it was entirely just about endorsing austerity and tinkering around the edges. And the tinkering around the edges ethos is still there. But at least when there's no suggestion of going back to austerity, and that's kind of that's kind of the big thing for someone for someone like me. Um, I, I just I I think it, so. In summary, I would say it's a solid speech, but I think he needs to make a better one um, because we need a, a, a more um, holistic and uh, bold vision than what we've got at the moment. And it was notable, I think he, he said, didn't he? These are, he said that these are, um, excite, he said these are exciting policies, which made me scoff a little bit uh, in the middle of it, because if you have to tell people that they're you know, exciting policies, they're, they're probably not really. You wanted to come in. Yeah, um, I'd just like to pick up on that point that um, Callum mentioned then um, about it being like not austerity. Um, is that like the best we can do, like if, to be not auster austerity um, in in Labour's economic policy? If that's the best we can hope for, then um, I, I don't feel very enthusiastic about it. Um, there, there was quite a few things in the in the speech which made me kind of almost like cringe, I think. Um, and some of it, that, some of that was um, to do with what what he mentioned about um, like businesses' role in in the economic um, recovery plan. Um, he, he he mentioned that obviously that labour is no longer um, you know wants to punish um, punish business, which is what. Uh, a lot of people interpret um, Corbynism and you know socialism to be. Um, so I just I, I, I think that I, I'm not anti-business, but I think corporations and you know massive conglomerates that have made billions from from the pandemic and have done really well, um, you know, have a, a more a bigger role in in the economic recovery plan than I think that Keir Starmer thinks anyway. Um, and there was something else that bothered me about it as well, which is this quote, um, this quote that he used from Harold Wilson. I don't know if you two noticed. Um, right at the end of his speech, he said um, that a quote from Harold Wilson, which was, um, Harold Wilson once said that the Labour Party is a moral crusade or, is, or it is nothing. He was right. Our moral crusade is now to addressing inequalities and injustices that this crisis has so brutally exposed. And to build a better, more secure future. I mean, I'm not gonna like 
shit all over it because obviously like i i i like um you know harold wilson but i i really don't like his um his socialism and his mantra to be used in this way because that's what he was he was a real like working class socialist and i i really don't think that's what keir starmer is or even what he stands for um i think it could have been much more ambitious in its approach i think it could be more reminiscent of um, the economic policies in the 2017 and 2019 Labour manifesto. Um, and I, I would have really liked to see um, some of that real kind of um, broad um, green kind of policies that, that Corbyn kind of championed. Yeah, and I think the green policies are, are, are something to get excited about because not only would it be saving the planet, we know for a fact that the green policies, or at least Labour's slate of green policies, would revolutionise the economy. It would provide tens, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs. It would invest in communities that once had industry and see them have industry again. It would mean that the, the country is, is on a war footing against climate change. You know, And we, we know we use this sort of language a lot recently, you know, war footing against COVID, war footing against this, that and the other. But that's what we really need. We need an economy geared up to actually save the planet, but also inject what we need for a, a proper recovery from COVID. So, I mean, I, I want to bring it back to, um, Ollie, you were talking about his, his um, what he was talking about business. And again, we, we spoke about Oct optics in previous podcasts and at the end of the speech when he was speaking about investment in public services Keir Starmer says um, that we will be financially responsible and that he knows the value of people's hard-earned money and I take that incredibly seriously to quote him now when I was watching the speech I found this interesting because again I, I feel that this is about the optics of who he's trying to play to I think that most people recognise that the government has to spend a lot of money in the current period. But I think Labour's trying to pass off a what will be a big package of spending as something that's going to be fiscally responsible. I don't know, somehow that people's bonds is going to offset the debt or something like this. But Callum, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on that and whether um, you think this is Starmer just positioning himself to please some people in the media that have constantly beaten Labour as being irresponsible with the with the public money, or whether it's it's a more um, I suppose concerning stance that he's now taking that Labour is not going to invest the amount of money that we need for a proper recovery and 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 invest the amount of money that we need for a proper economy that that he promised in in one of his his ten pledges to have common ownership to have properly funded public services i mean we go back to those 10 purges don't we and um, I, I, he still hasn't reneged on them so obviously it's still uh, possible uh, he just isn't talking about them now a lot of people of course will uh, will say well that's there's an there's an old sort of myth um, that a successful Labour leader will pretend to be right wing so that they can be left wing in government. Um, it's a position that's only taken by idiots. 
um, these days. I mean, people used to believe it back in the, in the new Labour days. And I kind of understood it because they were living in despair. But we know that there are better alternatives now, and you can actually uh, promote radical policies and win elections. So, as we as we proved in twenty seventeen, um, so I, I think to some extent, because this is someone who doesn't really have a deep politics, I mean that's pretty clear. He's a, he is a straight up careerist. And he's therefore making it up as he goes along to an extent. On the flip side, on the, on, and that is a bad thing, but on the flip side, it also means he's kind of malleable. Um, so in the long run, I, it doesn't necessarily mean that Labour isn't going to promise a bolder vision in due course. He just needs to be influenced better. Um, and... I I I I am starting to feel like he probably, if he continues on this path, he probably won't last until the next general election. But I kind of agree with um, Tom Cabassi's analysis that you know he's only been in in the job less than a year, and it can be turned around. I'm not optimistic. But I have to be at the same time, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I think just to come in on that, um, I saw Tom Cabassi's um, analysis of the speech and I found I found it very interesting. Um, for those that don't know Tom Cabassi, his background, he did back the Starmer campaign. Um, but he was critical of this speech. But I, I did like the caveat at the end where he, as, as you mentioned, he did say that there is time to turn this around. And I, I am genuinely intrigued to see what the post-COVID era will hold for the Labour Party. Once we can really start to flex our muscles, get our activists out on the doorsteps and really try and make a difference in communities up and down the country. Um, obviously, our first opportunity to do that will be the local elections, less so on the doorsteps. But it is a good opportunity to start to um, show what we can do. And I think that maybe it might take another cycle of local elections. We're talking 2022 to really get Starmer going into a real a flow, if you, if you like. But I'm, I'm I'm one of in that camp that says let's wait, let's see what happens because it is to use a term that we all have heard far too many times: unprecedented circumstances. And I don't think it's a valid set of circumstances to test um, Keir Starmer, Ollie. Yeah, just to just kind of round off the section. Um, I just when he says some flat stuff like "if I was prime minister," I just it's just like almost like a pipe dream. It's like he doesn't really believe it, um, and it's just like he's trying to convince himself. But but it's just there's not there's nothing behind the words almost. Um, I think that's quite sad. But um, something that was quite telling, I think, um, was when I tuned in to to watch the. The, the speech when it went live um, there was a few thousand people at the beginning um, you know waiting to hear what he has to say and by the end that dropped off to you know less than 500 people and I, I think that that's quite telling about how the, the speech went in terms of um, whether it is kind of exciting and whether these are kind of bold progressive policies yeah, and I, I think that that's probably yeah 
And I think that that's an interesting piece of analysis there is, is the, I think a Labour leader has to inspire people um, with their policies. They have to inspire people with how they, how they present those policies, they have to inspire a country. And certainly now, I think people do need some inspiration. So we'll uh, leave that there. I don't think that there's a, uh, a doubt in the mind that we'll be returning to the Labour Party and Keir Starmer, certainly with the local elections coming up. But we're going to return to that, obviously, later. But we're going to speak about the latest ruling around Uber now. So this week, there was a big judgment, huge, really, um, in the UK Supreme Court. And it said that, effectively, Uber drivers, um, which historically have been classed as self-employed by Uber um, and by the people that, that are administering employment law, um, so they've been classed as self-employed, but actually this ruling has completely shifted that. So they've now been classified as workers. Now, it, you might say, well, this is just Uber. You know, this is a very small section of the economy. But actually, this has bigger implications for the wider economy. And we have, obviously, the gig economy, um, which is that rather controversial sector that uh, proprietors of it say offer flexibility to the people that take part in it it means they can work whenever they want they're not constrained by their employer now actually when you look at it from a workers rights perspective it means they get worse rights they tend to get less pay they have no stability in their career a relatively low ability to have a social life because they're forever waiting for that phone call or that opportunity and in the case of Uber, they fix the prices depending on how many people are on. So if there's a lot of you looking to work, then the prices will be going down and therefore your income will be going down. But now this has taken a big shift. Um, with them being classed as an employee of Uber, it means they're now entitled to uh, what we'd call probably more um, normal rights for employees. It means that they can now have holiday pay. They can have sick pay. It means that they're less in, in fluctuation, more instability. And obviously, Uber have come out and said that this is going to have impacts on the service. Um, but I'm interested to get your perspectives on this. Ollie. Yeah, I thought it was, um, you know, obviously great news when it came through. Um, and the fact that it was um, a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, um, I think that's that's quite a positive thing because it, it means that Uber can't appeal it, um, but when I when I saw it and it was like it was it was um, published as breaking news, I just thought what a what a dystopian what a dystopian society we live in that that these um, <clears throat> workers have had to you know fight legal cases since 2016 to obtain the right of of a, a worker of an employee of a company, and I don't think there's very many um, Uber drivers that are. Um, you know, wanting to be classed as third-party contact contractors, um, and if they are, then I think they're a minority. Um, obviously, it is a great thing for um, for them to be guaranteed a, a national minimum wage, to be um, guaranteed like sick pay, and have other workers' rights as well. I think that's really important, um, and it, it goes along with you know some rulings that have been made in other countries. I think um, as well to to Uber. And other companies that try and kind of exploit their workers through 
through classifying them not as employees but um, as as things like third party contractors. Um, I think there was a ruling in, in France a few years ago which was quite similar to to this ruling. Um, so so yeah, I mean it's it's obviously a great thing, and I think it's a massive um, kick in the teeth for um, you know corporations that want to uh, kind of exploit their workers. And I think it's also quite interesting to think of it from a political perspective as well. Um, whether workers will, would get this kind of um, same protection, the same um, workers' rights if it was up to the government. Because, um, you know, it was a big thing in Brexit when um, a lot of, a lot of um, humanitarian organisations are worried about, um, you know, workers' rights in, in the UK because they don't have the same European protections now that we've left the EU. And it was, a, you know, a big... Uh, pushed by the government to cut the so-called red tape um, that actually, you know, is very beneficial to us a lot of the time. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting um, ruling and it, it makes me quite hopeful that um, we have the, the high courts and the Supreme Courts to kind of to make decisions like this to, um, to kind of um, keep us on track almost. Yeah, and I think that that's that's uh, you, you draw on on Brexit. I think that this this case for me is is a great opportunity for people in in the trade union movement, in the labour movement, um, or people just uh, that are in the gig economy to actually seize the opportunity now and say that this is a time to now set the agenda and say that we want better rights in the workplace, we want stronger unions. Um, I think the government may say something otherwise. Callum Watt. Yeah, I think uh, it's um, Ollie's right. Actually, you know, it take, took four years to get here is appalling. And I think that would show the benefit of a uh, if we of what of uh, what living under a Labour government would do, because you know the government, this government clearly wasn't going to legislate on this, but it was an easy thing to change, um, and it's now been changed by a court decision. The, th- the thing is, Uber's obviously lying when they say it's going to impact on the business. Because at the end of the day, the only thing they can do is pass on to customers the increased cost um, of actually giving people proper wages and so on. Now, the thing is, it, you know, just log on to Just Eat or any other uh, delivery food service, and the market is crammed, especially now, especially post pandemic. You know, every uh, restaurant or shop that wants to, or fast food outlet that wants to survive, is now doing takeaway. So it's a hugely crowded market. So if Uber were to raise their prices, people would just start to go elsewhere, right? Because there's plenty of choice. And so all this decision has done is basically ensured that the people working at Uber now actually get a fair slice of the wealth that they are creating which is fantastic. It's what the labour movement should be doing, the labour movement with a small L. Trade unions have achieved this um, alongside uh, Uber workers organising themselves. Trade unions have paid the legal fees. So it's a fantastic synergy of grassroots campaigning as well as you know, uh, supported by um, national unions, um, a real achievement, albeit a slow one. Um, and it will have, 
I think, very positive impacts on the rest of the industry because now every other service like that will have to follow suit. Um, so I can't see it as anything as a bad, uh, but uh, a good thing. Um, I don't think this sort of service really existed 15 years ago uh, when we last had a Labour government. But I think even a government under Keir Starmer would legislate to ensure that uh, what is obvious is reflected in the law, which is that if you are working for a company which delivers food on behalf of restaurants and you are delivering that food or whatever service it may be, you are employed by that person. If your wages come from them, you are employed by that person at the end of the day or company. Um, so, yeah, very, very positive. Um, a real sign that we're beginning to turn the tide against the gig industry, and I hope that it will give some uh, hope to those who do work in that industry and want to organise. Because while this particular case has taken four years to get through, now that the precedent has been set, and it's an important thing to note that in English law, there's there's three pillars. There's common law, which is theft, murder, that sort of thing. It's not even written down. Um, then there's uh, primary legislation, and then there is precedent set by judges in the courts, which is what has just happened. And unless that is now reversed by uh, the government in some way, by using primary legislation, anyone who is operating the business model that Uber operates now must employ people properly, giving them holiday pay, sick pay, minimum wage, and so on. Um, so very, very significant. I think it will have a, a really good effects for both the economy and the people who work in it. Absolutely. And I think, as I say, this is a, a, a massive change um, that has taken far too long. It's something that was needed wholly. I mean, in, in Lincoln, we obviously have a, we're, we're a university city, two universities here. And there's a number of students that work for some of the local uh, companies operating um, under this business model. You've got I, don't, I won't name them, um, but there is a number of them around and there's a lot of takeaways using that model uh, or taking part in those businesses and paying them probably a lot. And I imagine the riders and the drivers aren't seeing a, a very large fraction of the money that the, the, um, that the gig economy companies are, be, are being given from some of the restaurants and takeaways. So hopefully this is a great opportunity for a shift in attitudes from businesses to actually start to recognize the rights of people in the gig economy. But it shouldn't stop there. I don't think it should stop there. It should. We should now start to look at people that are in so-called traditional employment and see that actually the rights in the workplace there are being attacked left, right and center by this Tory government. And I think that we should be defending that at all costs. And the issue is, is, as Callum touched on there, if statute is changed, there's very little you can do about it. You need a Labour government or, um, or some random benevolent Tory government to come out of nowhere and start to give rights to workers. So it'll be an interesting time ahead, but I think that there's going to be a lot more battles like this as companies look for loopholes as they uh, probably will just issue contracts to um, employees 
guaranteeing very low hours indeed. I know from experience in the workplace that's happened to me, given a contract, I uh, had technically holiday pay, I had uh, sick time if, if needs be, and uh, the contract itself didn't actually guarantee me to working hours though, um, which is an interesting caveat. So that'll be the next stage. It'll be the formalized gig economy, I suppose, where some more traditional business models are operating. Um, Callum, I'd just like to take uh, just a little sample of what you think is the next battle then for the future in terms of workers' rights. Amazon, probably. Uh, I think that's that. That's the next uh, biggest uh, biggest task, as you say. There's still uh, formalised, um, basically, oppression uh, within our uh, system. Um, I mentioned earlier it should give heart to people. Amazon makes it very, very difficult for people to organise in warehouses. Um, but I know that Unite the Union is uh, particularly active in getting people unionised there, and they have had some success in America as well. So I think that's the next big battle, and I think we will win in due course. That's uh, very good to hear, and obviously... Over the last couple of years, we've also seen a growth in, in union membership for the first time in a long time. And I think that that's a positive effect of, of people realising that they can organise in these workplaces, such as in the warehouses, such as on the streets being um, Uber drivers. So it's, it's a real positive change. And uh, Ollie, is there anything apart from Amazon that you think that will be coming up in the next few years that, that will form a, a real battle for trade unions and the labor movement yeah i think it will be um i think it will be automation especially um in like the agriculture sector and um and i think that's going to have quite big implications on um you know on, on workers rights in, in the uk um i think you know it's a real it's a really difficult um, kind of moral issue. Great. So we'll now move on to another big battle that is facing our society, and this is social media. Um, so social media companies like to operate on a platform of offering free speech. And now obviously there's that great debate about around where does free speech stop? And where does hate start? Um, and social media over the last few weeks and months has really come to the foreground in the UK when it comes to hate towards people. Because um, highlighted by the Premier League and, and footballers, obviously being on telly all the time at the moment because people can't attend in person. Every Premier League game is, is being streamed on Sky Sports or BT, for example. So that means people are at home watching it a lot. And the impact of this is that we see that almost every single match day, every single weekend, every single week, we see uh, Premier League footballers subject to racist abuse online. Now, the reaction of a number of social media companies is to say that obviously this is not acceptable on our platforms, that that is simply not being shown in their actions towards people perpetrating these vile acts of abuse online. People are either being given short suspensions 
or nothing is happening whatsoever. And if they can't identify the person and report them to the police, then there's nothing that can be done. And I think that this really is opening out into a conversation around what next for social media companies. Do we have to start to verify every user? Because people are hiding behind this mask online. They're hiding behind the anonymity that they can achieve online and using it to abuse people because they missed a penalty in a football game. Racially abusing people because they put in a bad tackle on a football pitch. And it doesn't just stick to the 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 football incidences. It's politicians. It's people just putting a comment online and then getting racist abuse in return. It's people going out their way to racially abuse people. And I think that it's it's disgusting and it's unacceptable, but social media companies are so slow to react to this. And I don't think it's something that can stand for much longer. I think action is has to be taken now. And I think a number of people are standing up and saying, this is our time to act. And this is time to put pressure on the companies to make a change. But Callum, I'd, I'd like to bring you in on this. Social media, how can we reform it? Does it need legislation? Does it need a, a real culture change? Or is it going to just have to be a cull of accounts where people are just spouting racist abuse amongst other types of abuse? It's tricky, isn't it? Because if you're um, uh, places like Facebook and Twitter have become so big that they're almost like a public square in that respect. Uh, so they should really be treated as such. So if someone were standing in, in City Square and abusing someone, we would deal with that, wouldn't we? You know, you could you that that person might be arrested for harassment and so on. So obviously we have mechanisms for that already in law. Um and people are punished for it on a fairly regular basis. So obviously the sheer volume of abuse that goes on means that it's just uh, a scratch on the, on the whole mass, as it were. So, and obviously the main difficulty is that if someone gets their account banned or, or whatever, it's relatively easy to set up another account. And if you know what you do, even if you get your IP blocked or something like that, you can still use um, you know, a VPN uh, to get around it if you were really determined. Um, that said, I mean, I think what we really need is, is a technology expert really to talk about it because, because at the end of the day, it's... Just wait a second. We really need a technology expert to, uh, to talk to us about it because it it's... It's it, it's a it's still we we forget that this is still quite a new world. I mean, we've only been it's only really been in the last ten years where the majority of people have been online and using the internet. So it's really kind of a a, a new phenomenon in which we don't really all know how to behave. I think people who are my age and grew up with the internet um, are starting to learn 
how to have sort of online etiquette, you know, back in, you know, when we were teenagers and so on, we might get pulled into debates and, 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 uh, long diatribes. And of course, many people have made many, many mistakes online, which are there, therefore there forever. Um, but you know, that's not going to be the case for everyone. The internet's still expanding. So, and people obviously are still able to abuse it and just don't care. So I don't know. I, I'm not really sure what the uh, solution is. I, I don't really feel qualified to to come up with a solution. Um, I can only all I can say is that it's uh, it's a new arena. I think we have to get out of the idea that though the very dangerous idea that being allowed to abuse someone is part of your freedom of speech because it absolutely uh, is not. Um, yes, you can call uh, a public figure, uh, you know, uh, rude words and so on if you really want to. Um, but I don't think that um, people who are, you know, playing football or artists or whatever necessarily uh, deserve that just for having a poor performance. I think there's a line and the, as with everything, there is a line. And I think what we see as unacceptable in real life simply shouldn't be acceptable online. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I think the interesting thing that has come out of this debate is that there is a lot of words and a lot of, um, I suppose, a lot of reaction, but not a lot of action to actually stop um, people being exposed to these forms of racism um, and other forms of discrimination online. And I think you identified uh, and the, the line that, that potentially social media companies are using to justify leaving comments up in that people are allowed to um, have an opinion, people are allowed to have their say if somebody's done something bad in a football match or if they're a rubbish politician. But the social media companies don't seem to fully understand that racism is unacceptable. And they say that it isn't on their platforms. And yet you could probably go onto the um, the replies to a tweet from somebody like Diane Abbott and you can see it there and it won't be removed. I don't think that that is... is a social media company proactively trying to stop this. And yes, you can turn it into a whack-a-mole where accounts reappear with a different name, but the same person behind the screen. But actually, I think that you've got to find a way to stop it. And I think it does lie in legislation as well. We discussed how um, we've been slow to react to the gig economy emerging in the last 15 years. I think we've also been slow to react to legislating on how to govern social media in the last few years. Because if somebody said one of these things in the public sphere, if somebody said it to their face, they'd be arrested. Simple as. But because it's behind the screen, it's suddenly harder to do. And there is some laws in place, but I don't think that they go far enough. Ollie, what's your take on this? Well, I think Callum's, um, you know, spot on with his kind of... um his um, acknowledgement that it is kind of a really difficult issue to um, 
to pinpoint and we do have to rely on on expert opinions that really kind of know what they're talking about and have actually studied the field um just just this week um english football leaders have written to the the tops of of social media the ceo of facebook and the ceo of twitter to to kind of say that yeah it is unacceptable and we wouldn't tolerate this in real life so why is it acceptable on these digital platforms um and you're right to say i think that they are years behind um in terms of um actually dealing with it and um actually dealing with it in real time as well um i think i mean it kind of relates to it's 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 as as Bradley sorry as um, Callum said it, it relates to the issues of um, you know people crying out that it's freedom of speech and they should be able to kind of put whatever they want on social media, um, but you know it it, it only kind of th- those rights are limited in in some respect I think, um, but I think well recently. It, it's kind of similar to how um, Facebook and Twitter have, um, you know, um, started banning accounts that are, are related to um, like conspiracy conspiracy theories and um, almost kind of like far right cults. Um, I think I think maybe yeah maybe a purge is is necessary and um, maybe like really tough rules around um, abusing people and, and racist kind of hate speech online are, are required. I think that maybe is what it takes. Um, and we are really kind of living in the, the digital kind of wild west. We're really in our infantile stage. And I think when we look back on this moment um, in years to come, it will be kind of, it'll be kind of incredible. It will almost be like, um, it will be kind of shocking how we, we tolerated it almost and um, didn't do enough about it as a society. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think that it's it's going to be one of those things where, again, we're going to have to see a fundamental shift in how we approach these sorts of things going forward. Um, I suppose really we'll finish there on, on what is quite a, a sombre note, really, but... I think the, the important thing for us going forward, whether it be with workers' rights, whether it be towards social media and some of the abuse we see on there, is that actually there there is people fighting for a change. And it's the job of, of the Labour Party, it's the job of trade unions, it's the job of people with just decent opinions to actually stand up and say, this is unacceptable. Because if we did it anywhere else, it's unacceptable. So why do it online? Um, and there is a real psychological element to uh, online abuse in that people say things that they wouldn't say in public because it is behind a screen. But that doesn't make it any more excusable. It's not excusable whatsoever. So we'll finish there. I've been Callum Roper and I was joined by Callum Watt. Good afternoon and have a safe Sunday, have a safe week and we'll see you next time. And I was also joined by Ollie Woolwyn. Goodbye everyone, stay safe. And on that note, we'll see you again next time. Stay safe and obviously follow the rules. See you next time.